Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John. And I'm Barbara. And this week we're talking about something very close to our hearts here at City Metric. Maps. I can't wait. We've worked in the Middle East where we've got some urban planners come up with some wonderful designs of road layouts involving curves. They're actually very hard for people to decipher. You put a bend in a road and they don't quite, that's not how our minds work. We kind of straighten the road out. Congestion, traffic congestion is a rising problem in cities around the world. New York is no exception to that. So we write a lot about maps. We show a lot of pictures of maps on the website. It's kind of very much a, a theme. But I think it's fair to say that of the two of us, I'm the one who's really fascinated by them. I mean, like you, you, you like a map, you, you see the purpose in them, but you don't have the kind of slightly terrifying obsession with them that, that I have for as long as anyone can remember. Is that, is that a fair summary, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I was looking through earlier um, just at the maps tag that we have on the site, just not even just for me and you, but just to see what kinds of things people write about. And... I have written a few times about maps, even in the past couple of months, but I thought it was interesting that mine tended to be like maps and accessibility or maps and countries that are left off maps, whereas it seems like you and maybe other male writers are more interested in just the intricacies of actual maps, so not kind of where maps go wrong, but just maps are here. Yeah. We love them. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of what I was getting at, really, because I think it's it's not an uncommon thing for, for men to really like maps, in a kind of slightly weird, unhealthy way. And I think the response we get, or the fans that we have purely for our coverage of maps, tend to be... Again, we're not saying this is always the case, but anecdotally it's interesting that there's that tendency. Yeah. Have you got any theories about what the break is? Why? So I was checking earlier, because I know, I mean, obviously it's a horrible cliche that um, men can read maps and women can't read maps, and that is not true. <laughs> no one take away from this that that is true. But there is research around spatial awareness, um, which does kind of fairly routinely show up that men innately have a slightly better awareness of space. When you translate that into geography or the understanding of maps, um, actually that tends to get flattened out in anyone over about the age of 10. So I think that our kind of higher cognitive function means that women actually catch up 
um, in terms of actually being able to read maps because we all need to do that. But it's possible that the kind of the passion or the interest comes from the fact that men might innately have a slightly kind of a, a bigger connection to abstract um, kind of spatial diagrams. But again, it's not conclusive, but that's what researchers seem to think. I mean, what I find interesting about this on a sort of personal level is that this has genuinely always been something this has genuinely always been something that I'm, I'm quite into. Like my, the, the first time my, my wife met my grandmother, she was saying that, you know, oh, he was always very quiet as a child. Just give him a map of the district line and sit in a car. I was always destined to do this job. Um, <laughs> a lot of the, a disproportionate number of the maps we cover as well do tend to be sort of transport network maps. Um, and I have a theory as to, and one of the reasons we do that, to be honest, is that, you know, they get a lot of traffic, particularly the tube map. People, people just like reading it. So we do have a certain commercial incentive there. But I have a theory about why it is they get so much traffic, um, which is not related to my, my geeky male brain. Um, but I think like when you look at something like London's tube map, it's, it's the only reference point that every Londoner has in common. It's like, you know, if, if you get two different people in a, in a city in a room, then they will have completely different experiences of that city and which places matter and you know, what, what different places mean. But they can also understand each other's. Because, I mean, you don't get people who are hugely passionate about the Southwest Trains network map. Do you know what I mean? That it's yeah. The tube map is something we actually use. It's, it's, yeah, it's a common language. It's, it's yeah. the operating system for the city, I think. And it shares with other kind of viral internet-y things the fact, yeah, as you say, that a lot of people use it, but that it has all those things associated with it. There are hacks for the tube. There are, you know, different kinds of knowledge associated with it, which people can pass around in communities, and it's a sort of a common thing. Yeah. There is a guy who occasionally sends me messages on Facebook asking if I'd be interested in his bus maps of, of Cork in Ireland. To my shame, I've never actually uh, said yes because I suspect that the market for bus maps of Cork is rather small. But I don't know, maybe I'm about the size of Cork, or a bit smaller. Possibly, and maybe I'm being unfair to the good people of Cork there. As I said, I'm not the only one who's really slightly terrifying about this stuff, and there are people who, who do have a, a professional interest in it. Who we're going to hear from? First up, we're going to hear from a guy in New York who's been running a one-man campaign to to change the look of New York subway. This is a Brooklyn-bound A express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street-bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle. I'm Stuart Mater, founder of Subway NYNJ, which is a campaign for a New York and New Jersey subway map. As you may know, the New York City subway map is one of the most widely recognized and heavily used transit maps in the world. Just over 2 billion people rode the subway in 2014, and that number continues to grow. So it's one of the most visible transit wayfinding tools in the world. But it's missing something, and that is a subway service called PATH, or Port Authority Trans Hudson, which connects New York and New Jersey via the Hudson River. PATH isn't part of the subway map because PATH isn't directly run by the MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which uh, owns and runs the New York City subway. But the reality is that's really more a historical quirk than anything else. About a century ago, when the predecessors to the, the modern-day New York City subway were being founded, namely the IRT, or Interborough Rapid Transit Company, and the BMT, or Brooklyn and Manhattan Transit Company, those, along with the independent 
New York City subway eventually merged uh, in the 1960s to form the MTA. But there was another company called the Hudson and Manhattan Railroad, which was founded to build a subway system underneath the Hudson River connecting New York and New Jersey. And that system was absorbed by the Port Authority in the 1960s as part of a political deal to build the first World Trade Center. So it's really a, I guess you could say, a historical fluke, if you will, that all of these different in, uh, railroads weren't all absorbed into the same agency. But the reality is that doesn't really matter to the average transit rider. PATH is a subway system. It looks, acts, and functions almost exactly like the New York City subway. It takes the same fare card, the metro card, and there are physical connections between PATH and the New York City subway lines at four stations in Manhattan. So what we're trying to push for is to include PATH on the subway map so that there's a, a better, more regionally comprehensive picture of rapid transit in the urban core of New York and New Jersey. And this is important because the maps and wayfinding tools that people use shape their perception of the availability of services. You know, in America, we have an interstate highway system that spans the continental United States, and different states don't have different maps that show what their highways look like. We have coordinated national visual standards that are used for the highway system, if you apply the same logic to transit systems, the more that people see a comprehensive picture of the services available to them, the more likely it is to affect their decision on whether to take transit or whether to jump in the car. Um, and, and congestion, traffic congestion, is a rising problem in cities around the world. New York is no exception to that. And the fact that there is a very good and robust subway option for people that live in the portion of New Jersey directly opposite the river from Manhattan is a great asset, and it's something that should be made as, as visible as possible to the largest audience. And since the New York City subway map reaches over 2 billion riders a year, it's a natural place for those things. It's also a relatively inexpensive improvement to make. There's a German saying that's made its way around in transit circles, Organisation vor électronique vor béton, or roughly translated, organization before electronic, before concrete. And what it means is organizations should look at making soft changes that don't impact physical infrastructure before they get to those physical infrastructural changes that tend to require lots of resources and money and time. So if you're thinking of this in terms of a transit agency, making a change to a map is a much less expensive proposition than building an entirely new subway line. And those big infrastructure projects are, are attractive and interesting, and they tend to attract a lot of attention because the transformational nature of them. But there are lots of other changes that can be made that cost a tiny fraction of a major infrastructure project, but can have far-reaching benefits for people's perception and use of transit. And I see making a change like this to the subway map as a, an ideal example of that. It's also a good example of collaboration between public agencies that run these transit systems. And it's something that's done very well in other cities. Berlin is a great example. There are two rail transit systems in Berlin, U-Bahn and S-Bahn, which are run by different agencies. But Berlin has a single transit map that represents both of those services. In fact, the Berlin region even takes it a step further and has a jointly managed fare structure and fare system that allows you to use services run by the different agencies, same fare media, 
and they manage all of the collaboration and coordination so that you have a single fare media, you pay your fare depending on where you're going, and the agencies handle the, the accounting and distribution of that money accordingly. And that's great because these are the types of things that make transit convenient for people to use, and they help people make the decision to use transit without having to think about lots of these factors. The, the, the fewer things a person has to think about when making a decision about do I jump in the car or do I get on the train, the easier it is for that person to make the decision to take the train, which is good for health. We know that taking transit and walkability go hand in hand, um, and that's better overall for people's health than sitting in cars. It's also good for the environment. Transit systems generate less pollution than cars idling on highways in urban areas. And that's also good for the community. The less that you've got congestion and you've got air quality problems affecting urban neighborhoods, uh, the better it is for overall health quality and particularly for children growing up in urban areas. And as we see a movement back towards cities and, and more and more people raising their children in cities, that obviously is an important factor as well. This is a Euclid Avenue-bound F train via the A line. The next stop is Nostrand Avenue. This is a Brooklyn-bound F train via the B line. The next stop is Grand Street. We'll hear more about Stuart and his campaign later in the show, but for now we're going to talk to someone who actually makes maps for a living. Hi, uh, I'm Tim Fendley from Applied Wayfinding, and we design city information systems. Okay, so or maps as they're they're also known. They okay. it include maps. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, may, maybe we'll get on to some other stuff later in the conversation. But we, yeah. I think, probably it's fair to say that the, one of the more prominent projects you guys have worked on is the legible London system of signage that you yeah. kind of get all around the transport links and on, on Oxford Street and so on. Yeah. Basically, you guys went in and designed an entirely new map for the whole of London. Is that right? That was the general idea, yes. It started off really that we spotted that nobody was really looking after the walking mode. Buses, tubes, driving cars was all being treated as a mode and was being looked after, information produced, tools you could get and people looking after those. But walking accounts for 55% of journeys in London and yet there was really nothing. There was nothing for people to to use and, and simple observation of coming out out of tube stations and thinking well where am I and which way is it questions that a lot of people find difficult it's one of those things I suppose as a designer you just spot things you go hang on a minute that's a problem there but we've got some ideas about how we can solve it and the other observation was that when we did some research was that we found 44.5% people walking who were using the tube map to walk with really not built for walking um but what it did tell us our hypothesis was that people wanted some help and they went for what they trusted which was the tube map the idea really is that when you're in the tube use the tube map you come out the tube you need a walking map if you're kind of looking you've got a project in a new city you're kind of looking at it you're you're basically designing a new map where where do you even start like how do you sort of begin a project like that from top to bottom, it starts really with what the objectives are. What are you trying to achieve? Which invariably we get the same patterns. You get there's a big visitor demand. There's actually people who live and work in the city demand not understanding what's around the corner. There's some kind of initiative behind why the city's looking at this. Well, we start looking at what we call the legibility of the city. How 
easy is it for people to just fundamentally understand? Is it a difficult city to understand, or has it got difficult parts, or is it reasonably easy? What, what, what's a difficult city and what's an easy city? Well, a difficult city is one that's difficult to remember, um, that's difficult to navigate, that's difficult to position yourself in the city. So New York has numbered streets. Um, you get to know New York, you get to realise they go up in number and they go across in number. But that's only for two-thirds of Manhattan. Down at the bottom there, it's all down to the London-style little mm. roads because it's the old city. But what we found with the block structure of, of upper Manhattan is that people come out of the subway and they don't know which way is north. It's a lot of work they've got to do to then position themselves on that, on that corner. So in one way, New York is really good in, with the numbers. And in another way, New York is much harder than London because there's not so, enough difference in character in the street structure Hmm. we've worked in the middle east where we've got some urban planners come up with some wonderful designs of road layouts involving curves they're actually very hard for people to decipher you put a bend in a road and they don't quite that's not how our minds work we kind of straighten the road out and you can really really mess people up a lot of people think the thames think that um, westminster bridge runs north south Westminster Bridge runs due east-west. Mm. It's the bend in the river. It's such a big feature, the brain just doesn't really work that out and think and tries to simplify it because the brain connects junctions, connects points, um, not necessarily in terms of direction or uh, distance. It's interested in the relationship between points. So some cities have got a structure that gives character and difference and some cities have got large boulevards that create structure that you can work from. London has got very few. Um, it's got very few boulevards. It's got Oxford Street, perhaps. Hence, why is Oxford Street such an important shopping street? You're not going to get lost on Oxford Street. You just mm. walk up and down. So would you say London is the most difficult city you guys have worked with? One of. It's got some really good legibility features. It's character and difference and this the fact that roads change and they're small and they're wide and there's little squares creates character and memory whereas other cities that are really similar and um, what happens is your brain's just thinking you're in the same place all the time and it can be really, really confusing but then London's structure is a complete homogenous wonderful mess um, of a street layout and um, and that's difficult for people to decipher and work out which mm. way to go I suppose one of the ways we do navigate a city like London, other than the tube map, uh, related to the tube map indeed, is as a sort of collection of districts and villages and so on. Absolutely. Um, And one thing London is very rich in is kind of, you know, local area named. There's almost no part of town where it's not as contested what it's called. Absolutely. So how how big is nomenclature in the mapping process? I was just coming on to that. That's really the the key starting point because the central idea is, is that if you agree a nomenclature for the city, then everybody's got the similar... We all understand you need the similar addressing system. It's It's just an extension of that addressing system. When we started working in London, we found the villages that you just described... Soho, Mayfair, um, Ludgate, you, you name it, it's, it's, it's rich in history and they're very embedded. 
But nobody was really looking after them. Nobody really defined where they were. Um, maybe estate agents were trying to move them a little bit, and you know, residents would resist that. Like, um, what was it NoHo was was attempted <laughs> to be named, and and the residents shot it down. It's Fitzrovia. Don't change anything around here. But in New York, we found such a newer city. It really is. It's changing so much quicker than London because of its age. Um, and in America, it's a reasonably established city. But while we were there, we were spotting the rise of the meatpacking district. We also found a similarity, and there's lots of references to this in some urban design manuals, of the size of these villages are invariably five-minute walks, which kind of creates a little local neighbourhood. It's where you go within five minutes. And what we found in London is, in central London, all these little five-minute neighbourhoods are kind of butting up to each other. And you get to outer London, and they're all separated by residential areas. But you still get these little five-minute neighbourhoods like Crouch End or Muswell Hill. Mm. But they're just a bit more separated. So we realised that there's a real understanding city structure. And we found the same pattern in New York, albeit looking slightly different. But these five-minute neighbourhoods were what was popping up. So West Village is a big, big area. And as it became more trendy and populated and residential, Meatpacking District became a name that people used. You say the name people used. I guess that's my next question is, what do you... Are you reflecting the names people use or are you trying to guide them at all? Bit of both. We, we try not to play God to name areas, although if you're developing a city, you need to name places. And all names started somewhere. So your question was, are we trying to guide people? In an older city, we're much more trying to reflect the reality of what's there. We called it the folkonomy. What are people really calling it? And use that, because that's what everybody's referring to. And this is another issue we got in some other cities we've worked, where they invent new, really long, double or triple-barreled names because they're trying to look after everybody. Um, <laughs> for example, for a train station, um, nobody can agree what it's called, so they call it Badum, 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 three things. And we're like, no, it, nobody's going to call it that. Get off at whatever station. They're going to say the short name. So that's really what you call things. I was in Brussels the other day, and everything obviously has two names because there's two languages. So but It's about memory. It's about memory. You're going to remember an address. You're going to remember the station. You're going to remember how to use it. If you can remember it, you can use it. Then you'll put it into your head, and you'll refer to it. So it's got power. We've, we've mostly been talking about London and New York, and there's always... To be honest, there's always a danger on this podcast that we focus on, on those two more than other places. I mean, what, what other models are there out there? What other kind of cities are you, are you guys interested in in terms of their, their sort of function and, and how they work as maps as well as you know, urban organisms? Well, we've worked with a number of small and medium size. If we, if we can say London, New York are your, your large, extra large. Small and medium-sized cities like Brighton, Glasgow... Leeds, Cleveland, Ohio, um, recently Toronto, which I call the, that would a large city. Um, and it's what we find is that there's some very, very similar patterns, um, again, like the villages, but it might only be like three village areas in the centre. But it's the same real patterns that we see popping up again and again. You've got a much more rarefied environment where you've got three or four main arrival points and then you've got maybe 20 destination points, and routing is much more focused. Um, whereas in a big city like London, it's hundreds and hundreds of each. So somewhere like London and New York, it's an almost infinite number of route options, whereas somewhere like Brighton, presumably, it's much smaller. And you're just well, it's reflect. arrivering at the train station, it's the main car park, so they're your main arrival points, and then you've, you haven't really got much of a transport network. And then it's walking from there. So one of the big jobs in Brighton was get you down to the front, down the main high street, 
I forget the name of it. And then remember North Lanes, there is North Lanes as well as the lanes. Mm. And North Lanes gets forgotten because you can't see it. It's, it's off the beaten, off the track. It's a little alleyway to North Lanes. So one of the aims of the project was to get people coming in through North Lanes, which is near the train station. Tim, thank you very much. Great, thank you. I think the the commonality that, that what Tim and Stuart have been saying has is that maps are not just the tool. They're not just about a, a way of getting from A to B, um, but they actually have a direct impact on how we perceive our cities and how we experience them. A new map can open a city up and sort of make you think about areas that you'd never consider having gone to before. Yeah, and I think that a big part of this is actually that most people unlike maybe listeners of this podcast, aren't obsessed with maps. And so I, for example, if it wasn't part of my job, wouldn't spend very much time looking at maps of London that weren't the transport map. So if, say, the overground wasn't on the map, I wouldn't really have a conception of those parts of East London served by the overground. So those people who are making those maps actually have a huge amount of power, really, in where normal people think they can go. What do you mean you wouldn't if it wasn't part of your job? What do you... <laughs> don't, don't I've been exposed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd be reading it on the city. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Metric, obviously, wishing obviously, that I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living the dream. Yep. People like maps because they, they simplify the world and they make more things visible to you. Cities are not simple organisms. They're, they're kind of infinitely complex. If we had a, a tube map sort of entity that showed every little neighbourhood in London... It wouldn't be the tube map anymore. That's that's kind of the position we're getting to with, with, with the tube map now, in fact. As more and more lines go onto it, losing its raison d'etre, really, isn't it? Yeah, and last week I wrote a piece about um, the fact that researchers now think, or certain researchers now think, that 
maps are getting slightly too complicated. Subway maps have become such iconic images because they are very simple and they are very readable. But in bigger cities, so, I mean, in, say, Tokyo or in London, if you include every single transport option and you extend that out to the suburbs and into the other cities that are being eaten by this bigger city, then it no longer is very simple. And actually there's there's a limit to the the number of interactions and number of points on a map that we can have before we can really um, understand it. Yeah, and I think it's probably significant that beyond a certain scale, most cities have more than one metro map. So in some ways, the the rail network map of the whole of the southeast of England is London's commuter zone. But you don't try and put that on the tube map because it just becomes Mm. completely unreadable. Or in Paris, there's a separate map for the the metro and the RER. But then it's tricky because that's when you get accusations of why is this in the centre and this isn't? Why is this included and it's not? And maybe it's it's better to accept that maps always are value judgments, but they need to make those value judgments in order to be legible. Because otherwise, you you include everyone, but no one knows what's going on. Mm. And I mean, in London again, the buses are maybe underused compared to what they could be. Because for tourists or for people who are new to London, they're actually fairly difficult. There's no simple bus map you can look at that's anywhere near as easy as the underground map. But equally, if you stick the bus map on the tube map, no one ever uses it ever again. Apart from everything else, there just aren't enough colours in the world. No, so <laughs> limit the number of lines and journeys. You'd need a new visual spectrum. Um, New York is probably not quite at that point yet in that there is this whole sort of gap at the west side of the map where New Jersey sits. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess we should go back to Stewart and see how his campaign's going. This is a Manhattan-bound B skip stop train. The next stop is Sheepshead Bay. This is a Ditmars Boulevard-bound B train via the N line. The next stop is Broadway. The fact that the New York, New Jersey, New York City urban area spans two states certainly is a factor in this for a couple of reasons. One, as a a longtime resident of the New York area who moved here um, after growing up outside the area, one thing I've observed is there is a certain provincialism about the New York, New Jersey relationship. Put that another way, it's, I think, a rite of passage among some New Yorkers to fun of New Jersey as the lesser. But the reality is New Jersey and particularly Hudson County, right across the river from Manhattan, is increasingly important to the New York area. It is one of the fastest growing areas for residential growth. Uh, People who work in the city are increasingly choosing to live right across the river in New Jersey. Hudson County is not really, in a traditional sense, the suburbs of New York. It is very much part of the urban core. I happen to live in Hoboken, which is right across from Manhattan. It's a beautiful city very much feels similar to the urban environment you'd find in parts of Brooklyn, Queens, and even parts of Manhattan. And so as an area like this becomes increasingly important and more and more people are choosing to live there and more and more people work in the city and are using transit, making sure that awareness of transit options is as high as possible is beneficial for the overall economy. The other factor in this, I think, is there has long been a bit of a divide in the way that, uh, politically speaking, in the way that things are addressed in the the New York, New Jersey area. The Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, which is the agency that happens to run PATH and also runs the airports and ports in New Jersey, was actually formed in response to a legal case in the early 20th century 
that was brought against the railroads, the various private railroads that operated in the region who were very much competing against each other, building separate rail stations, building separate lines that did not interlock with each other. And the Interstate Commerce Commission in a 1917 ruling said, and I think it's a great quote, New York and the industrial part of northern New Jersey are part of the same community. That statement is as true today as it was then, and increasing the perception of the availability of transit across this unified area that is part of one community is the goal of my project. The response has been good overall. We have close to 5,000 supporters on Facebook. We have good response from the Port Authority and PATH to the idea. We're, we're talking with them about it on an ongoing basis, and they're very supportive. We've also received some feedback from the MTA on the idea. They've been focused on some logistical questions and issues around the idea. One is comes down to colors on the subway map. As you know, New York City is building a new subway line called the Second Avenue Subway, and the, the current plans call for that line to be represented with a blue, uh, a blue color on the subway map. PATH happens to use a blue color, and those two colors are a little bit close, so there's some question about would that be confusing to riders. And then there's another question around how do you represent this on the map so that it's clear to people that there are connections between PATH and the subway at certain stations, but not a free transfer. And I'm heartened by the fact that the issues that we're discussing around this are technical and logistical questions at that level as opposed to an existential question of should this happen or not. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to uh, see some good movement on this project in the near future. So last time on our water podcast, we had a brief discussion of which is the largest city in the world that isn't built on a body of water. Um, and ironically enough, we, we dried up on this question. Uh, but luckily, uh, a very nice economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture called Lyman Stone got in touch from Washington, D.C. to answer the question for us. Um, he points out that the largest city in the world uh, that's dry today is absolutely certainly Mexico City, although when it was originally founded by, by the Aztecs, I believe, it was on the site of two lakes, which has since just dried up. Um, if you're looking for a city that, that was dry when it was founded, then it could be Bangalore or Bogota, though both those again have lakes. Or if you're looking for the, the biggest completely dry city in the world, Lyman reckons it's probably Riyadh. Those all sound pretty convincing answers to us, so we're going we're to trust his judgment on that one. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey Lynn, the creator of last week's Map of the Week, um, also got in touch to say that he's created an interactive version of these maps. So not only can you know which parts of large cities will be underwater, but you can check up on your own street, rather depressingly. Um, but you can find that on our website at the moment. Uh, also, I should confess I made a terrible error in, last, in the last podcast when I said that Kinshasa, the uh, Congolese capital, was in the middle of Africa. Um, actually looking at a map, it's very clearly on the western side of Africa, so I apologise to the residents of Kinshasa for that. Very embarrassing. Yeah. If, um, if you uh, would like to correct any screw-ups we've made in this particular podcast, or, you know, just to talk to us about anything, then get in touch. You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royfield Brown. You can find us every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could ever possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. 
This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동. 